Well, good morning. It's good to see you. Uh, thanks for being here, whether you're in person or online. Uh, I know sometimes it takes a lot uh, for us to get here. Uh, I don't know what your day was like or what your week was like, or what the last month was like, uh, but we are so glad that you have carved out time to be here to worship with us, and uh, we're just thankful for that. And we pray that something throughout the day gives you some hope, some encouragement, uh, some transformation for the week ahead. Uh, Chris mentioned that we have been going through this series uh, on deconstruction. We call it Remodel. And uh, a part of the reason why we wanted to do this is because uh, most people uh, who have grown up in the church, who have uh, been a part of a church or part of faith or whatever that is over the course of time, uh, have to go back through and look at some of their faith beliefs from early on. Uh, from maybe when they first established their kind of belief system. And we talked about that whole game of Jenga, right? Where the, the idea of that is you kind of stack higher and higher uh, and you identify the, the bricks or the blocks in that that are, that are weak, that don't fit quite right, and you take those out and you place them on top. And a little and deconstruction, a healthy deconstruction, works a lot like that. Uh, unhealthy deconstruction says no more bricks, wipe it all clean. Uh, but that's not deconstruction, that's spiritual homelessness. And it's not fun to be spiritually homeless. And so we want to help you. We've tried over the last uh, six weeks now to try to help you deconstruct in a healthy way. And we've taken some really, uh, I've had several people over the last couple of weeks say, I've never heard a sermon on that before. And, uh, and I don't know if that's good or bad, but uh, I hope it's been helpful for you as we looked at maybe some blocks or some bricks or some foundational pieces along the way that maybe helped form or shape your faith. And at the time, they were good, they were needed. But then over the course of time, you realize this doesn't fit right anymore. In fact, for some of us, because of the way it didn't fit right anymore, it actually caused our faith to kind of tumble or maybe to completely disintegrate over time. And so we talked about what do we do with things like injustice or suffering in the world? What about when we see Christians or maybe even more importantly, Christian leaders who, uh, who get caught up in scandals or who we find are not as scrupulous as what we had hoped they would be? What does that do with our faith? Uh, we talked about uh, the Bible and how the Bible is not the foundation of Christianity, although for many of us growing up, that seemed to be that case. And last week, we talked about the idea of uh, some of us were never taught primary, secondary, and background beliefs, right? Everything was equally as important. So you had all of these rules that you had to follow. It seemed like you never got them all right, and everybody was always arguing over the next thing. And so it's important for us to understand that, that the Bible even talks about some of the things that are primary and that those over, uh, supersede over everything else. This week, I, uh, I want to start with um, probably what is one of history's greatest mysteries. Uh, one of history's greatest mysteries, and it's this. How did a small group of uneducated misfits whose leader was both rejected and killed not only survive but thrive under state-sanctioned violent rejection? One of history's greatest mysteries. How, how did a small group, and in fact, when Jesus was killed, there were zero Christians, right? It says that everybody deserted him and nobody believed that the tomb was empty. Or if, if they believed it was empty, it wasn't because they thought he rose again. That wasn't on anybody's radar. That came as a shock to them. How did we go from zero Christians to a growing number 
in a time where there was, you know, there's no social media, there's no like, hey, let me Xerox you a copy of the Bible so you can read it on your own and grow in faith. And oh, by the way, these are some of the poorest people you would ever meet. So they didn't have the funds to kind of say, all right, here's, here's the charge. We're going to get our, our best speaker. We're going to get the most uh, interesting highlight film of, of Jesus' resurrection. We're going to put it out there for you. In fact, what they had was somebody named Nero who was killing Christians, lighting their bodies on fire as a way to keep them at bay. And yet that group of people continued to grow. And in just a few centuries, a couple hundred years, the the Roman government, which crucified Jesus, now places crosses on their buildings as a statement of faith. How does that happen? That's truly one of the greatest mysteries of history. Well, I think in order to understand that, we have to understand what happened with this early group of people. And in order to understand that, we need to go back to a story. And it's a story that that we've talked about several times over the last couple of months together. So we're not going to read it together. But you can find it in Matthew chapter 16. Jesus has his disciples gathered around and he asked them a really important question. You may remember the question. The question goes something like this. Who do people say that I am? And that's a huge question for you and I to wrestle through. Is Jesus who he claims to be? And so they answered his question. Some people just, they think you're a great teacher. Others say you're one of the prophets. And he says, all right, that's perfect. But who do you say I am? And Peter, if you don't know him very well from the scripture, he's, he's always the guy who has to say the first thing, and he usually will stick his foot in all the way up to his kneecap, right? And, that's just, and we all know uh, somebody like a Peter, and if you don't know somebody like that, then you are that person, I'm convinced. <laughs> and he says, you're the Christ, which is a title. It's not Jesus' last name. And ultimately what Jesus says is, listen, You're the one. We've been waiting for the one since a long ago, since Genesis chapter 12, when God establishes this covenant through Abraham, and we've been waiting for the coming Messiah. You're it. Jesus says, you're right. And upon that truth, upon that confession, upon the realization that I'm the one, I'm going to build, and your text says, the church. And can I tell you that ever ever since we started printing that verse, we've had a problem. I, I love it, and I think Jesus was right, but we translated it wrong. And that's the problem. You see, the word right there, I will build my church, is ecclesia. An ecclesia is this, a gathering of those summoned. How many of you have ever gotten a summons before? A summons to appear. What does that mean? Shout it out. Come on. Yeah, you have to go somewhere, right? You have to, you have to go. Right? You can't stay in your house. If you do, they'll come find you. It's, it's something to go to. We understand that when we talk about being summoned. We have to go somewhere and do something. And oddly enough, this is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 28, right? When they're all gathered around. I love the way that Matthew writes this. He says, we were all gathering around on the mountain and and we worship him. And some of us still were doubting. And he says, with those group of people who are worshiping and doubting, he says, all right, now go. Go and make disciples and teach them everything that I commanded you. And they're like, wait, wait, we didn't get diligent enough notes. Could you give us some more today? No, 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 no. Nope. And I don't need to cloud up. I don't, I don't need to cover up. I don't need to fix all of the doubts. In fact, you're okay. There's a part of faith is doubting. But I need you to go because that's what ecclesia is. And interestingly enough, this is what Jesus says that he's going to build is his people 
who are a group of people who will go, who are summoned. See, I think a lot of times when I grew up and we talked about church, it was a building. Or it was a group of people who had a specific style of faith, right? A certain kind of faith, right? And that's what the term meant for us. Are we going to go to church today? What time is church? And all of a sudden, church began to be locked into a building, a location, a place for us to go and attend. And it was no longer a gathering of people who were summoned to do something. But it's more than that. And we should expect that because that's the way Jesus laid it out for us. In the greatest sermon ever given... Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, just a few, uh, a few chapters before Matthew 16, when he says, this is my ecclesia, my gathering of summoned people. He begins to talk to this group of disciples. It's a, it's a large group that's gathered on a hillside to hear him talk. And he begins to lay out what it means to live in his kingdom. So if you have your Bible, open up to Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to start in verse 13. And I love this section of Scripture. I, I've probably, in, uh, in the course of 20-some years, I've, I probably have taught on it uh, dozens of times. I, I love the way that Matthew um, uh, tells us this story, and I love the words that Jesus used. This is what happens. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 13. This is kind of still towards the beginning of Jesus' sermon. And this is what he says. To those who call themselves disciples, followers, students of his. You are the salt of the earth. Stop for a moment just right there. How many of you have gone to a movie theater in your lifetime? Some of you, I'm convinced, don't ever raise your hand. No matter, I could be like, how many people are breathing? You're like, not me. I'm not doing it. Never done it before. That's fine. Whatever. We're all built different. Okay. Uh, <laughs> you've gone to movie theater. How many of you, when you went to watch a movie, you got popcorn? How many of you, when you got popcorn, you also had to get something to drink? Why is that? Because it's salty, right? So I'm convinced that they could give you popcorn for free and then charge you $20 for something to drink, and you're going to pay it. Because you can't eat that popcorn without having something to drink because salt makes you thirsty. What if, what if, when we read that as, as Christ followers, as people who are summoned by Christ, that we read, your job is to make people thirsty for God. See, I wonder if a long time ago, we assumed that what Jesus was saying was, go to a building, go to a place, have a certain kind of belief, interpret the scriptures a certain way, and you're good. And he said, no, 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 no. I want you to be in and among the people so much that they are thirsty for what you have. Have you been around somebody like that before? It's like they just have this joy that uh, uh, just oozes from them. Or their marriage relationship makes you think that maybe one day your marriage relationship could be that way. Or you've been around their family, you think, man, I want to raise my kids like they're raising their kids. You're just thirsty for more of that. And Jesus says, you, you are the salt of the earth. To which they rebut, I don't think so. I, I don't think I could do that. You see, I'm imperfect. I have doubts. No, and he says this. But if the salt loses its saltiness, if you no longer make people thirsty, then how could it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. And then he says this. You're the light of the world. What do you use light for? To see, that seemed pretty simple, right? How many of you have ever uh, 
maybe it's raising kids, maybe it's getting sick in the night, maybe it's, you know, you hear, you think you hear somebody breaking in, or maybe you did, uh, and so you get up in the middle of the night in the dark, and you think because you've lived there for five years, or ten years, or thirty years, whatever it is, you can nav- navigate yourself around the house in the dark, and then you discover <laughs> that you, you mentally can, but your feet can't, you know, or your kneecap can't, and, and you wind up whacking them, Right? And, and hopefully, you know, you say very few or almost no emergency words along the way, right? That's the, that's the hope. See, light at its core is helpful. Now, I can take that same light, like when you go to an eye doctor, an ophthalmologist. You've been there before, those of you who who get to wear these things like me, and they will shine a light in your eyes that I, I think they have some kind of sadistic nature about them. They will shine it so much in your eyes that your eyes are trying to blink and water, and they keep saying, hold your eye open, you know, and you're like, I can't, you're burning my retina, right? I mean, if you'd stop that, then I'd stop what I'm doing. <clears throat> That's not a helpful light. It might be helpful to the doctor, but it's not helpful to me. And he says, you are the helpers of the world. A town built on a hill can't be hidden, uh, hidden. neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl, because that wouldn't make sense, because then it wouldn't be helpful anymore. But instead, they put it on its stand and gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your, what does it say there? Good deed. Oh, there's a few of us following along. What does it say? They, yeah, they may see your good deeds and then glorify your Father in heaven. You see, the way that this band of uneducated misfits whose leader was both rejected and then killed, how did they survive and thrive over state-sanctioned violence and rejection well they made people thirsty to know Jesus more and they were helpful did they have all the answers no did some of them doubt oh absolutely we're told they did 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 they not get it right oh 100% did sometimes they have to get letters saying you know what's not okay adultery we shouldn't be doing that do you know it's not all right if you keep continue on in sinning? It's not good, but they committed themselves to be a people who were commissioned to go. And this is how the early church survived some of the most critical time in history. And you see, for the early Christians, belief and action were intrinsically tied together. We talk a lot about faith and deeds. You've heard that before, right? But for early Christians, that was just tied together. That was something they did. That because they believed who Jesus was, it shaped what they did. And see, I think for most of us, and part of the deconstruction of the church is that we no longer see Christians as helpful And no longer do they make us thirsty for more. I love this quote. If you know much about history, uh, and some of you are learning this about me, that I I am a history nerd. Uh, Through some of the most uh, violent times against the Christian church happened under uh, Emperor Julian. Emperor Julian was uh, the emperor that was shortly before Constantine. And in fact, he got a nickname. Uh, Chris Adams and I were talking about this a little bit earlier. That his nickname was Julian the Apostate. Uh, we think nicknames are new. I think, I think they're just nicer now, right? I mean, they, they, had, some, they had some really rough uh, nicknames back then. Julian the Apostate. And Julian the Apostate, though he never wanted to be a Christian and though he persecuted Christians... He recognized that Christians were doing something that was transforming the world around him. 
And so in his writing to, uh, to a group of people, one person in particular, uh, as he was writing them, talking about what can we do? How can we rally these people to, to, to support our Roman cause? Because it seems like so many people are being swayed by this group of Christians who we are trying to, to lock up and kill. He writes this. We ought to then share our money with all people, but more generously with the good and with the helpless and the poor, even though as to suffice for their need. And I will assert, even though it be paradoxical to say so, that it would be a pious act to share our clothes and even our food with the wicked, for it is to the humanity in a person that we give and not to their moral character." Interesting thought. Hence, I think that even those who are shut up in prison have a right to the same sort of care, since this is a kind of philanthropy that will not hinder justice. For it is disgraceful that when no Jew has uh, ever to beg, the impious Galileans, which he calls Christians, support not only their own poor, but ours as well. And all men see our people, uh, our people, a lack of aid from us. What is he saying? He's saying that, listen, there's a group of people, these Galileans, the, these people who believe this man from Galilee, and they serve people, and they give to people, and they shelter people, and they love people who don't even believe like them. And they do it so well that it makes us look bad. So maybe, just maybe, we should start doing what they're doing. Because maybe, just maybe, we would look better if we were more like them. I wonder what that would look like in our day and age. Maybe you've heard the name Bart Erdman. Uh, He is is a a philosopher, uh, he is not a Christian, he's, he's an atheist, but he has studied uh, Christianity and, and in fact is a scholar on the New Testament, which is interesting. And in his book, The Triumph of Christianity, he writes these words. Christianity, as he's looking back on the early church, the New Testament church, not only took over an empire, the Roman Empire, It radically altered the lives of those living in it. He said it didn't just take over. It wasn't like, you know, you you see some kind of military branch. It, It completely changed the lives. See, I noticed this about punishment is that that you might be able to kind of thwart a behavior while somebody's in your presence. But to change a life, that takes a whole lot more, doesn't it? And he says this, it was a revolution that affected government practices and legislation and art and literature and music and philosophy. And even on a more fundamental level, the very understand, uh, understanding billions of people had about it, what it meant to be human. What did Christianity do? Well, it fundamentally changed how we saw each other as human beings. We no longer saw people as a label. We no longer saw people as disregarded. He says, Christianity at its core changed that. And then he goes on to say this, however one evaluates the merits of the case, it doesn't matter if you, if you think Christianity is hogwash, if you kind of believe, if you sort of believe, if you fully believe, or you're anywhere in, on that spectrum at all. He says, no matter how one evaluates, evaluates the merits of the case, no one can deny it was the most monumental cultural transformation our world has ever seen. See, that's what happens, I believe, to a group of people who understand the gathering of those summoned. But I think we have a problem. And I think a part of the reason why so many people leave 
church today is because they don't see that group of people anymore. See, one of the major reasons why people walk away from the church isn't because of the teachings of Jesus are hard. We all go through hard things. It's because they see little to no value in church. You're a group of people who aren't summoned. You're a people who gather together and protect what's yours. And what if that looked very different? See, I'm convinced of this, that the primary focus of the church, if the primary focus of the church, or when the primary focus of the church is self-preservation, it ceases to be the church. That's not what Jesus called his ecclesia, summoned to. He called us to be salt and light. He called us to be people who make others thirsty for this God and I know all too well, I'm sure if I sat down with you, you sat down with me, we can share our, our fair stories of people that we've interacted with, and they were salty, but not in a good way. <laughs> they didn't make you thirsty for more of God, they made you thirsty to get away. But church, I have heard, and you have heard, that there's a, a lot of people now saying, you know, the church is dying. And I think there's reason for that. And I think this might be it. That we're no longer a people called out. But I think you and I, we don't have to let that happen on our watch and in fact, what I would say is, Wellhouse is not designed to be a people who come together and, and self-preserve what's ours as long as we can until we can't anymore. See, I think when we started Wellhouse, it was with this understanding that we wanted to be wildly generous. And here's the beautiful thing about being wildly generous, is that it doesn't just happen to, ha uh, to, to come across with money, right? You can be wildly generous with a lot of things, and that's what I think was key or paramount or fundamental for these early Christians. When everybody else was leaving those who were in need abandoned, the Christians said, I will be there, I will be present, I will help, I will serve, I will do whatever it is, because I want you to be thirsty for the one who did that for me. And in any way possible, I'm not going to hide what I have, I'm going to expose what I have and what has been done for me to be helpful for you. And that's what the church, when it's doing well, does. And that's what we want to continue to do here at Wellhouse, is to be a church who is not just meeting for the sake of, of calling ourselves a church, but to be the true ecclesia of Christ, a people, a gathering place who is summoned to go into our area and change the world around us. Because I believe, I believe it can be done again. Chris, uh, I, I, uh, I get to work with um, what I believe are some of the most uh, wonderful people in our shepherding team, our lead team. And Chris, uh, Chris Adams, this happens to be one of the people on our lead team. And I told you all today through Facebook, or th uh, the last couple of days through Facebook, we had some really exciting stuff to share and Chris, I'm going to ask if you'd uh, begin to share those things with us. Absolutely. Um, I'd ask for Ashley to join me as well. Um, uh, we, are, uh, we are part of the lead team along with Chris uh, Cheatham-Brown, who's not here this morning. Um, and I wanted you to, if you didn't know who we were, I wanted you to put faces with names. Um, I know most of you know us, but um, just thought it was important to, to introduce ourselves. Don't worry, it's not long. <laughs> um, you know, the past few months, there has been a lot that's going on behind the scenes at, at Well House. Um, and we're privileged to be a part of that, uh, to, to help um, Steve as he leads and, and as we take the next steps for Well House, whatever that might look like. There's lots of decisions that we've had to make and continue to make. But to Steve's point, we're we try to make those decisions based upon what's best for the kingdom, what's best for this community, this zip code that we live in, and what's best for this church family that, that worships here. And those are not just words. I mean, we're trying to live out um, through our decisions and, and leadership 
ecclesia, trying to be salt and light in, in everything that we decide to do. So we come back to, you know, time and time again, how can we do the best amount of good we can with what God's blessed us with? And we look at some opportunities that we have, and one of those was mentioned this morning, you know, kids, our, our kids group, uh, our youth group, um, and we're starting to see things like the middle school um, needs being addressed. Uh, that's something that, um, that God's called us to do and called a group of people to head up. Uh, Zeta, who's done an amazing job with our children's ministry, uh, has, has let us know she's going to uh, step aside in September. So we've got to make some decisions on how to hire someone else to continue the great work she's done and, and take, it, take it further on in the future. So as we think about our kids, um, one of the things we kind of keep coming back to is we need a space. We need a space for them. Um, and part of that um, is, is just, just basic needs. And, and obviously, we need a space for ourselves. So we have been actively and aggressively looking for space for a long time. <laughs> uh, but certainly over the last years, we've, we've met with people, we've gone to places, and it, for whatever reason, it didn't quite work out uh, very recently. We thought we had a, a pretty good possibility. Um, and we invited a few of our partners and our shepherds to go visit this spot. And there was an overwhelming majority of, of an opinion. And that opinion was, eh, meh, you know, <laughs> not, not maybe a great fit, um, which is good. Uh, it's good to know that we all kind of reached that same conclusion. It wasn't quite enough for our kids. It wasn't enough for us to be able to reach out to the community we felt like. Uh, it wasn't a great place for us to grow. So, um, you know, at this point in my talk, I, I know if, if I was in your shoes, I've been here uh, at Wellhouse for a while, I would say, man, I've heard this before. <laughs> you know, time and time again, we kind of we have this conversation and we get, we get close to a place and it just never quite, it always quite fizzles out. Um, so we're, I promise you we're in the process of still looking for a space, but what's different this time is uh, I think we found a partner that we can work with to help us find a space that we can bless our community. So at the same time, we're trying to find this goal of finding a space, um, you know, this multi-purpose facility, a place that's going to be a, a beacon in our community, that's a big, audacious goal. Um, and I work at a bank. Banks don't see it that way. Banks are more interested in uh, dollars and cents and repaying a loan. But we needed a partner to help us think outside the box, to dream big dreams with us, to have a big vision cast alongside us. And I think that we've, we found that. Um, based upon our, our past experiences and just conversations we've had uh, with, with other churches who've gone through the same thing, uh, we landed with a group called Solomon Foundation. They are a church extension fund. Um, what a church extension fund is is basically a bank or a lender to churches. Uh, church financing is really complicated. Um, but there are lots of church extension funds out there. There are dozens upon dozens. But what's unique about Solomon Foundation is they really partner with their churches. They, they're not necessarily concerned about the finances, although they are, but they're more concerned about church growth and making sure that um, we're doing the things in our community that Christ calls us to. Um, they're very important, will be a very important part of our ministry and our mission, we hope. So Doug, uh, excuse me, Steve and I met with Doug Foltz, who's a representative from Solomon Foundation a few weeks ago. Uh, that conversation went really well. Um, and we're going to watch a video here in just a minute, uh, an interview that Steve did with Doug. And hopefully we'll bring him um, in in the next few few months. But I want to, before we watch that video, I want to share a few things with you first. Um, we have been in prayer, in deep prayer, about this for, for many weeks. Um, we've been very skeptical. We've asked tough questions of Solomon Foundation. We don't want to get burned. We don't want our church to go through that. Um, we have raised objections. We've looked at their finances inside and out. And at every objection, every hurdle we have put up, every 
skepticism we've, we've uh, aired, they've all been met and, and overcome. And it's truly, um, it's truly been amazing to watch and see. We just really feel like this is right. Uh, we've talked to other leaders who have used Solomon Foundation. Uh, and they are all uh, just absolutely on board with how well they have helped them take their ministry to the next level. When I, when I say next level, just amazing amounts of good things that they're doing. Uh, not just a building, but a, a true community center, a place where people with special needs can come in and so forth. Just all kinds of just amazing ministries. So one thing you need to know about me is I'm, uh, I mentioned I'm working at a bank. I'm a trust advisor. I'm a paid skeptic. Uh, I'm a professional planner. Uh, it, is, it is what I'm, I'm, the bank pays me to do is to, uh, to think through these things. And I've never felt more positive or more excited about this partnership and about what the future of Wellhouse is, I think, through the Solomon Foundation. So uh, I wanted you, to, again, to put faces with names. If you guys have questions for, for us, uh, Steve, obviously, as well, don't hesitate. Uh, don't hesitate to call, email, or, or talk to us uh, in the lobby or wherever. So with that, I'll introduce uh, Doug Fultz, uh, who's going to be um, on this video. So, Doug, thank you so much. And um, would you just tell us a little bit, maybe even about yourself, about uh, the Solomon Foundation, what you guys do? What we really do best, uh, Steve, is we help uh, churches that have never had buildings get their first building. That's really our sweet spot. And uh, we're what's called a church extension fund. And church extension funds were created in the Securities Act of 33 and 34, when all of these security laws were rewritten after the bank collapse in the 30s and late 20s, uh, they put in a little paragraph allowing groups of churches, denominations, affiliation of churches uh, to uh, establish a fund for the purpose of making loans and receiving deposits. Our CEO, Doug Crozier, has been in this industry for close to 30 years. He came out of the banking world. And uh, he, he used to be the president of a fund on the West Coast called Church Development Fund. And he led that for about 15 years. And 12 years ago, started the, the uh, Solomon Foundation. And since that time, we've grown to over a billion dollars in total assets, which is extremely rare in the uh, church extension fund world. And we have over 500 loans. And uh, we have a a very strong uh, financial record that you guys kind of specialize in helping um, churches, especially churches without a building, find uh, what you might refer to as a, a as a box, uh, just a, sometimes like a warehouse or something like that, maybe a uh, an old um, uh, convenience store, Walmart, whatever it is, uh, and turning that into um, a place for churches. But also, and this is, I think, something that that is Wellhouse's passion is is to utilize that space uh, more than just this just a Sunday uh, space. That they're actually you guys help uh, churches think through how to. Um, function that building to make the most of it for the community, for outreach. Uh, a lot of churches right now, you know, they, they're looking at, they're, they're going to put all this money into a facility that they're only going to use once a week. And they're thinking, how can we leverage this to be an outreach to the community? And we have some great examples of uh, churches that have seven day a week kinds of facilities where they have all kinds of programs. Some of them have put indoor soccer fields. Uh, we have uh, a church in Carrollton, Georgia, the third and fourth floor are filled with uh, college dorm rooms. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, oh yeah, everything you can imagine that's being done. We have a, we have a church uh, in uh, South Carolina that's right across the street from the entrance to a large uh, Air Force base. And so they have a drive-through donut shop which helps pay for the mortgage, but also gives them an opportunity to put little notes into the donuts for, for the people coming through. And you can imagine military people are picking up those donuts like crazy. Yeah. It gives them a chance to, uh, to have some revenue, but also more importantly, to uh, really build relationships. One of the things we've been doing a lot lately is helping churches establish preschools uh or daycares one of the things that every preschool in america has in common is a waiting list 
And uh, we've got uh, some of the best people in the country that we we partner with that can come in and do an analysis and and really help a church set it up properly, do all the training, all of that kind of stuff for you and uh, teach you how to onboard uh, people who have come into um, into the preschool, into your church. I was just at a church. Uh, up in uh, Charlotte this past weekend, and I was standing in the foyer and with the pastor, and and somebody came through and it was a couple, and they said, "Yeah, we we just registered our child, you know, in the preschool, and we just wanted to come and check out the church." And uh, it's a great way to uh, build a bridge into the community, but we do that a lot. Yeah, that's that's awesome, Doug. Um, I think I think you you had mentioned of the five hundred loans that or the five hundred churches that you have helped. Um, um, through that process, only one of those uh, ever didn't succeed. And I think a part of the reason, or maybe one of the big reasons why it didn't succeed is some of the things that we talked about that you guys additionally help with. Now, you mentioned uh, you have a construction guy that comes and helps and looks at some of those costs. And, and of course, the money portion of that that you guys help think through and, and the building portion of that. But you guys do even more than that. Sure, sure. You know, the two things that'll, that'll hurt alone more than anything, are, well, it's not finances. It's uh, either moral failure in the pulpit or what we call leadership meltdown. And that's where uh, the pastor's get sideways with the elders and and so you have this meltdown go on and so we we do a lot of work in order to make sure uh, pastors are healthy and relationships are good some of the things we do uh, for that uh, we have for example uh, uh, one of the pillars of the restoration movement on our team a guy named Ken Eidelman Ken was uh, president of um, Ozark Christian College for 35 years he went, then went and led a mega church of 3,500 people for 10 years, and then called our CEO and said, I would love to come on your sta staff if you have a place. Yeah. So we brought him on as leadership development. I can pick up the phone anytime and call Ken and say, Ken, this church is having some struggles. Uh, there's some leadership meltdown going on, or there's been a moral failure, or they just need to go through uh, some, some stewardship analysis or or they just need to uh to go through leadership development and and on our dime ken will come in and ken will work with you i i i so much appreciate that because i think you know that approach is so different than you know what you get from a bank who who might say all right here's some money and just pay on time and we don't have any issues that that churches function different and um that there's a lot of moving components to that. So making sure that the church is healthy, that the leadership is healthy, that the staff is healthy, that's something that you guys care about. And I, I love that. I really do appreciate that. Doug, as we kind of close out our time together, is there any encouraging words that you would pass along to them? Well, let me tell you why we do this. Uh, you know, if you take a look at our values, uh, our number one value is to honor God in everything we do. And our number two value is to see people come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Don't know any other financial institutions in America that have those as their first and second value. And we really do mean that. Um, you know, I gave you some numbers earlier, but let me tell you about the numbers that mean the most to us. Uh, in the facilities that we have helped uh, build, fix, you know, et cetera, um, we, we keep track of attendance. And today there are 180,000 more people going to church than were before when we helped those those uh, those church congregations. That's but awesome. the big thing is, in those facilities we've helped provide, there have been 65,000 baptisms. And mm -hmm. that's really what motivates us is we want to see people come to know Jesus Christ. Yeah. And so that's, that's why we do what we do. Uh, mm -hmm. It's not about you know, financial things. It's about kingdom impact. Yes. And so we would love the opportunity to partner with you all and help you all get to the place where you can have a facility and continue to expand uh, your ministry impact. We are, uh, we are really excited. Um, and I, I want to, I want to tell you this. We're not excited. Uh, I've heard a lot of people say, like, I can't wait to have a place of our own. Um, and that's exciting. Um, 
but not nearly as exciting as what I think that God has called us to, right? Isn't called us to a building. He's called us to be wildly generous where we are. And that's important um, that we understand that. You see, the early church got that things were not going to be easy for them in their context. Uh, when you see your fellow brothers and sisters being killed and crucified and, and locked up, that's not easy. So we understand that it's not going to be easy, but just like in their day, we have some things that are surrounding us that need wildly generous people who are willing to step in and say, I'm not just going to be a part of a church that meets. I'm going to be a part of an ecclesia who's summoned to go. And that's what we're calling you to. See, you may not know this about our area, but here's the problem. There are roughly 40,778 people in our area where we worship about 42% of those people, or roughly 17,126 of those people who have no religious affiliation. And that number may not mean anything to you at all, other than the national average is around 26%. And I believe it might be that very reason for the next few statistics I'm going to give you. On average, people in our area where we worship and where we call ourselves salt and light make about 24% less annually than the national average. That's who's surrounding you today. Of the people in our area, this area is 63% higher when it comes to homicides uh, on the rate than the national average per capita. 63% higher. 74% higher uh, violent crimes per capita as compared to the national average. You see, family, there's a reason why we need to be called out and summoned. And it has nothing to do with just having a building for us to land in home. It's time for us as a community to do something bigger than us. And I love this because it isn't just saving some money and doing some things during the, during the, the year or the month to help people. If money were the issue, our government would have solved that long ago. They don't mind throwing money at things, right? It's about a group of people who are committed to what Jesus calls us to be salt and light See, it's not that we need you. It's that they do. They need you to be salt and light. And I wonder if in this community of 40,000 plus people, if we couldn't change what those statistics looked like over time. And I wonder if it couldn't start with me and you. And I think it will. I think it will. Because Jesus' call to an ecclesia isn't an event to attend it's not I went to church on Sunday morning and then I went on and did other things. It's an invitation to participate in God's kingdom here on earth. And that's what we want to call you to. It's an invitation to participate in something bigger than you and to be wildly generous in ways that you may not be prepared for yet. And that's okay. It gets messy and really involved, but we believe it's worth it we want to partner with uh, things that are already ongoing so that we can be a community center that offers hope to all of those around us. It's not about Wellhouse Church. It's about advancing uh, the kingdom and making people thirsty for this God who saves and redeems. Has he saved and redeemed you? And it's about helping people who are in desperate need. See, the early church... What I love about the early church, and they didn't get it all right. Sometimes I grew up in, I grew up in this era where it was like, well, we need to imitate the early church. And we've never been called to imitate the early church. We've been called to imitate Christ. But the early church didn't wait for things to get easier. It's like, well, maybe when they stop killing us, then we'll do something. Maybe when we have more money, maybe when we have all the, the doubts solved, Maybe when the politics support our agenda, 
maybe when the persecution stops, maybe when the money rolls in. They didn't wait for those things. They knew that they had to be the present day hands and feet of Jesus in the world because if they didn't do it, nobody else would. And Wellhouse, you are surrounded by a group of people, a population of people who need you to be the hands and feet of Jesus in this world. Because over and over and over again, the reason why people walk away from faith and they walk away from church is because they don't see the value in it anymore. And they're waiting for people like you and me to say, you know what, I'm going to put my time, my energy, my value, my resources into what I know that Christ has called me to do. Not to attend a service, not to check it off the box, to be a person who's summoned in this world. And to build our tables bigger, not for the sake of growth, not for the sake of counting numbers in a church, but for the sake of the kingdom of Christ. That he wants nobody to perish but for everyone, one of those numbers, to find hope in him. And in just a minute, we're going to dismiss to the tables. And I want you to think about this, that before you came today, somebody had placed uh, a part of a a bread and a, a cup, and that represented you. We thought about you, and we prayed for you. But we want to make those tables bigger because the same invitation also awaits for them as well. So we're ready to make those tables bigger, to invite more people to the hope and the saving grace of our God. And in the meantime, as we wonder and and watch and see what God is doing, may the Lord bless you. May he keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and give you peace. To him who is able to keep you from falling and present you before his glorious presence without fault and with tremendous joy. May you be swept away in God's love for you and transformed through the Holy Spirit's power within you. Thanks be to the only God, our Savior, who's unparalleled and unchanging, who is matchless and merciful, who is supreme and sufficient, who is before all things, through all things, and in all things, both now and forever. Amen. You're dismissed to our tables.